Ah. Thank you, Brother Scott. Great message in that song. Take your Bibles. Turn with me to Revelation chapter number 2. Revelation chapter number 2 this evening. We're all going to stand before the Lord. We understand that. Romans chapter 14 and verse 10 tells us that we will stand before the Lord to give an account of our lives. In that evaluation of your Christian life, what do you think he's going to ask? Did you work hard enough? Or did you give all that you could? Apostle Peter thought he knew what it took to follow the Lord. He thought it in fact, he thought he had it all figured out, at least until he fell and denied the Lord. In John chapter 21, when the Lord confronts him and restores him, Jesus just had one question for Peter. Remember what that question was? Peter, what? Do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Our love for the Lord is foundational. Everything else is built off of that love. Just how important this principle is is reinforced by what the Lord tells us here as he addresses the church at Ephesus. Chapter 2, verse number 1 says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write these things. says, He who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. As we begin chapter 2, we move into the second division of the book of Revelation. You remember that in chapter 1 and verse 19, we are given an outline within the book itself. We find this is the second part, the things which are Revelation 2 and 3 are the seven letters to the seven churches then existing in Asia. In these letters to each of the seven churches, we find out our Lord's assessment of those churches. It can be said that these letters have four primary <coughs> applications. First, there is a historical application. Each one of these letters was written, as I've already said, to 
one of seven literal churches then existing in Asia at the time that John wrote this prophecy. Secondly, practical, because it addresses common difficulties and challenges that almost every church and every individual will face down through the centuries. And third, personal. It's addressed to individual believers in that each letter ends with the same exhortation. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then there is fourth, prophetical. Written in anticipation of the seven ages which will occur in the church age. If the church of Ephesus is placed within this dispensational network framework, it will represent the apostolic church from about A.D. 30 to A.D. 100. If you read four or five different commentaries, you will find that those, those divisions vary a little bit from one to the other. We do need to know just a little bit about Ephesus itself. Ephesus was the capital of the province of Asia, a city that was both a commercial and a religious center. Uh, Ephesus was called the Light of Asia. It was the ending point of a great system of Roman roads that constituted the trade route west. It was famous for the Temple of Diana or Artemis. I have a picture here, which is a recreation. If we can bring it up, this is the creation, a, a recreation of the Temple of Diana or Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. The temple was massive, some 425 feet long, 275 feet wide. It was at least two or three times the size of the Parthenon that you are familiar with. Why you don't know so much about the temple of Ephesus is if I showed you a picture this morning, you would on, uh, this evening, you would only see a part of the uh, facade. The front of the building is all that's left. A part of the front of the building is all that's left. The Parthenon is in much better condition, and that's why you are much more aware of it. Ephesus was also uh, the hotbed of every religious cult and superstition in this city filled with paganism. God had placed a lampstand. He had placed a church which had become a very powerful light throughout the region uh, for Christ. The church at Ephesus had a long and illustrious Christian heritage. Perhaps no other church could make the kinds of claims to have had the leadership uh, that the church at Ephesus had. The church had been founded by the Apostle Paul and had been under the leadership of Paul on the second missionary journey. It had been under Timothy's leadership. Uh, Paul had returned to the city on his third missionary journey and he spent three years teaching there, more time than he had at any other church. And when Paul left Ephesus, he placed Timothy in charge. And then uh, the apostle John was pastor there before his exile to Patmos. So some of the most outstanding teachers of that day, including Apollos, had been <clears throat> through the city of Ephesus and had taught there. Only the church at Ephesus had been the recipient of a New Testament letter written by the apostle Paul. 
Well, as we begin to look at these letters, I want us to first of all look at the commendation of the church as the Lord begins to commend the church for those things that it has done right. It says in verse 1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write these things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. And then in verse 6 as well it says, But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So caring enough to confront, the Lord stands in the midst of the church to strengthen it. This letter is addressed to the angel, literally messenger, most likely human messenger, probably meaning the elder or the pastor of the church. Now, over the years, I've been called a lot of things, but angel was not among them. But they did call him the angel here. Each of the seven messages to the churches begins with a personal description of the Lord Jesus Christ, directly relevant to the unique problems and needs in each of those churches. In this letter to the church at Ephesus, he reveals that he is omnipresent. He is ever in the midst of the church. He reveals he is omniscient, that he is all-knowing, and that he is omnipotent, that he is all-powerful, holding the church and its leadership in his hands. The words of the Lord are even stronger than those found in chapter 1. Jesus not only says he has the stars, as he did in chapter 1, verse 16, but he says that he holds them in chapter 2. And verse 1, not only he stands in the midst of the lampstands, chapter 1, verse 13, but that he walks among them, verse 1. Jesus then says, I know. This is a word that implies a full and complete divine knowledge of what's going on in each church and each individual that makes up that church. As the psalmist says in Psalm 139, verses 1 through 3, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Now, there are three things that the Lord commends this church for. First of all, he commends them for their deeds. The Lord knew about the church's service. He says, I know your works. He knew they were a sacrificing church. He says, I know your labor. And labor is literally to toil to the point of exhaustion. They were not like the church that you might have heard about that gave its year-end report. They listed no baptisms, no new members, no money given to missions, But they closed with this observation. But bless the Lord, no other church in the area has done any better. He commends them not only for their deeds, he commends them for their discernment. He says you cannot bear those who are evil and you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. 
You know, it kind of sounds odd to us to hear the Lord say he hates something. It's not very politically correct for Jesus to say he hates something. In fact, that Jesus of popular imagination is one who loves everyone and hates nothing. But the Lord Jesus does hate something. He hates anything that leads people away from the truth. He hates anything that leads people away from salvation. So the Lord commends this church for its orthodoxy, for its standing firm in the face of doctrinal challenges. He specifically speaks of a group called the Nicolaitans without really telling us exactly who they are or what they taught. Whoever they were, they are spreading evil doctrines throughout the church in Asia. They are mentioned again by name in the letter to Pergamum. And probably by implication in the letters to Thyatira and Sardis as well. Now Paul had previously warned the elders of the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 that there is going to be this invasion by false teachers. Men claiming apostolic authority did come to Ephesus and they brought with them novel ideas and novel teachings and perverted doctrine, it would seem that these Nicolaitans perhaps had advanced two heretical beliefs. First of all, they may have said that there is this differentiation between the spiritual and the physical, that we are able to separate what we are spiritually from what we are physically, and in separating themselves into a physical and spiritual creature they gave themselves license freedom to sin because what I did in the flesh has no effect on my spiritual condition they taught that the deeds done in the body had nothing to do with the person's spirit secondly some suggest that they are defined by their very name Nicolaitans comes from two Greek words put together which mean conqueror of the people. According to this thought, they represent the attempt to create a hierarchy in the church, clergy, as opposed to laity. They taught that the clergy or the officers of the church, whether they're called priest or archbishop or cardinal or whatever it is, were somehow a special group who were spiritually superior to the people, common people, who were in the pew. This, of course, is an unscriptural and dangerous idea that gives control of the church to one man or to one group. He also commends them for their durability in verse number 3. He says, you have persevered and have patience. And have labored for my name's sake and not, have not become weary. The church at Ephesus had evidently been exposed to some very fierce opposition. The city was a very pagan place. And almost every pagan religion was represented there. It was one of the great centers of the worship of the Roman emperor. It had also the great temple of Diana 
which also had a very great economic influence on the city. When Paul's preaching caused the sales of religious artifacts uh, to plummet, the city's craftsmen violently opposed him in Acts chapter 19. But in spite of all the opposition, the church had not denied the Lord. They were firm and unswerving in their loyalty to him. It appeared that they were a model church in almost every conceivable way. Its members were busy in their service. They were patient in their trials. They were orthodox in their belief. Only one thing was lacking in their lives, and it is that that Jesus now focuses on. Secondly, the complaint against the church. Verse number four. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Jesus begins with a very sobering word, nevertheless, which means despite all of that, in spite of all that's been said, they have fallen from the height of their devotion and they have settled for mediocrity. Perhaps we ought to take the moment to understand the distinction between leaving your first love and losing your first love. The distinction between leaving and losing is important. Something can be lost by accident, but leaving is a deliberate act, though it may not happen suddenly. As well, when we lose something, we don't know where to find it. But when we leave something, we know where we have left it. Something had happened in the life of the church that had left them cold and mechanical and operating out of routine. They were busy, but it is possible to be busy as a church or individuals and yet be unfruitful. The church can become more and more involved with activities and programs and meetings and even involvement in the latest causes. Yes, as a result of all this activity, there can be little time left over for developing a loving relationship with our Lord. They're still giving service to the Lord, but they're not giving him themselves. The characteristics of a church leaving its first love may include a a neglect of God's word, a lack of desire for prayer, a growing fondness for worldly things, a satisfaction with present spiritual attainment, a trifling excuse for the neglect of Christian fellowship, a tendency to discontent and fault-finding, a decreasing desire to see souls saved. The characteristics of an individual Christian leaving their first loves may include when I claim to be only human and easily give in to those things that I know displease the Lord, I may have lost my first love. When I do not willingly and cheerfully give to God's work or to the needs of others, I may have lost my first love. When I view the commands of Christ as restrictions to my happiness rather than expressions of his love, I may have lost my first love. When I cease to treat every Christian brother as I would the Lord, I may have lost my first love. 
when I inwardly strive for the acclaim of this world rather than the approval of the Lord, I may have lost my first love. When I fail to make Christ or his words known because I am afraid, I may have lost my first love. When I refuse to give up an activity which I know is offending a weaker brother, I may have lost my first love. When I become complacent to sinful conditions around me, I may have lost my first love. When I am unable to forgive another for offending me, I may have lost my first love. The loss did not happen all at once. It was slow. It was probably subtle. And it was silent. This issue is so important that unless they put their love for him in first place where it belongs, the Lord says nothing else really matters. Verse number five gives us the third thing, and that is the cure for the church. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. They are confronted with the consequences if they do not change. And notice how this confrontation is carried out. First of all, they are confronted in love. The Lord was not content with their fruitful past or how they compared to other people. He demanded that they be blameless. They are confronted with the goal of restoration. He wants to restore them to where they have fallen from. They are openly and concisely told what the problem is. And then they're told how to be restored. First of all, he says you need to remember your past. The first step in spiritual recovery is discover how far we have fallen. They are told, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen or the height from which you have fallen. If you think back to the New Testament and you think about the story of the prodigal son as he found it, woke up and found himself in the pig pen, the first step in his restoration was remembering what life was like in the father's house. It's always the first step in getting back to where we need to be is remembering where we've fallen from. Remember your past. Repent of your error. Jesus doesn't ask them to work up some kind of emotional response or even to feel bad about their situation. He asks them to effect a change of direction. Repent and do the first works. He's not talking about merely changing our mind on a point or two, but of setting out in a new direction. And then he says, return, return to your best. Do the first works. And then they are clearly warned of the consequences if they do not obey. It's one of those places that seems pretty severe. Repent or else. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that they're going to lose their salvation? No. He says to the church, either change and remain a light or do not change and I will remove the lampstand. 
it's worthy of note that no church, no church is guaranteed a secure and permanent place in this world, no matter what significance of its past. The fourth and final thing is the challenge to the church in verse 7. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. First, they are admonished to hear the warning. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. This qualifies everyone. He's really not even talking about those who can physically hear. He's talking about those who are open to hear the word of God. Everyone is qualified, everyone who will listen. This letter was not only written to the church at Ephesus in the day of the Apostle John, but it is also written to us and to all Christians throughout the centuries. And then they are admonished to heed the warning. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Each of these seven letters ends with a promise to the overcomer. Now here's where a little bit of controversy enters concerning who are the overcomers. Who's he talking about when he says, this is the promise that I have to the overcomer. The first interpretation is that this is designed to all believers. That's in keeping with uh, all those people who have put their trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because that's what we see in 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, where it says, For whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Here he simply shows that those who overcome are those who simply have faith and are believing in Jesus as the Son of God. But the problem here in Revelation seems to be that these promises to the overcomer are conditional. If you do this, you will overcome. It seems to be upon overcoming the conditions that are prevailing in these particular churches, they will be blessed. So the second interpretation is that overcomers are the faithful and obedient children of God. And a failure to overcome means a loss of reward, not a loss of salvation, but a loss of reward. The overcomer then is the person who obeys the message of the letter and overcomes in the conflict with evil. We understand, I think, that not all, all Christians ultimately overcome. We'll get to heaven. But not all Christians are equally victors in this life. Some overcome more than others because some rest more in their faith than others. The message to the church at Ephesus ends with this promise to the overcomer. 
I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, the word paradise speaks of the personal presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what Jesus promised to the repentant thief on the cross. He said in Luke chapter 23 and verse 43, Today you will be with me in paradise. It is also the privilege which was lost because of Adam's sin. If you go back to Genesis in Genesis chapter 2, you'll really realize that man lost access to the tree of life because of his sin. And it is regained through faith in the second Adam that is Jesus. He says, those who ever come will be granted paradise. Paradise being the personal presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. What an important victory and promise that is for us as believers. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises that we find. We would love to know what every day of the future might bring. But we know that's not the purpose of the book of Revelation. But rather, the book of Revelation's purpose is to reveal to us the person and work of Jesus. Help us, Lord, to draw closer to Jesus. Help help us to grow in our knowledge of his character. And may our knowledge of his character cause us to be stronger and more vibrant Christians. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me?